So here's the deal, everybody. We just absolutely love producing as much content as possible for Film and Whiskey Nation. But if our regular episodes aren't enough for you, then you can head on over to patreon.com slash filmwhiskey, sign up for one of our memberships, and you will get a slew of extra content for your listening pleasure. Check us out on patreon.com slash filmwhiskey. In 1957, director Stanley Kubrick and star Kirk Douglas gave the world a cutting war drama that pulls no punches in its critique of high society. In 2023, we try a well-aged space-side scotch. The film is Paths of Glory. The whiskey is the singleton of Glendullen, 18-year. And more we'll review them both. This is the, the Film and Whiskey, whiskey Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are rounding out our short three-week miniseries of Stanley Kubrick films with his 1957 anti-war masterpiece, Paths of Glory. You you say short, although that's what like 90% of our director miniseries have been. <laughs> well, we're coming off of Kurosawa, where it was like... 48 films in a row, you know? Yes. <laughs> three seems short by comparison. But I was going to sure say, does. Brad, that like in just three short films, I don't know that we've ever covered as much ground thematically and stylistically as we have with Stanley Kubrick. Dude, I'm telling you, the only other person who can stand up to him is Rob Reiner. <laughs> Rob Reiner is looking better and better in comparison each week. We compare him to the masters of the medium. Yeah. Mm. So uh, now that you've seen all three movies, Brad, and I assume just for, you know, to get it out there, this was your first time seeing Paths of Glory, right? Yeah, I I think I said it last week. I don't think I've watched any Stanley Kubrick. Okay. Ever. Like until the podcast. <laughs> no, even now. You just, I'm just even making this all point. this up. Yeah. <laughs> so... You've seen all three movies now, and I tried to say this last week that we were going in wildly different directions each week, but you have the complete picture now. I mean, just how different are these three films that we've watched? I think that thematically they're, you know, wildly different. I think you can tell that it's the same guy directing, though. See, you know, I finished this movie and I was like, man, this is nothing like The Shining. Like, by the time you get to The Shining, he has developed this very kind of uh, detached filmmaking style that came to define his last few movies. Like uh, Full Metal Jacket looks a lot like The Shining. Eyes Wide Shut looks a lot like The Shining. And in this movie, you know, I think this shares a lot in common with Dr. Strangelove. And it may just have more to do with the technology he was working with at the time. But even from Strangelove to 2001, I'm like, oh, this seems like completely different eras of filmmaking. You know, not not to mention that it looks like two different guys making the movie. For me, it was the the way the camera moves feels incredibly similar in all three films, mm. like the way he composes his shots and the way he he works around characters, I, I thought felt very similar throughout. Like, 
I don't know. It, it felt like it was one specific director with a specific vision of how a film should look. Yeah. I think you're right in saying that his characters become less uh, relatable by the time you hit 2001 and mm-hmm. The Shining. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas like Dr. Strangelove, they're like not relatable, but, but it's because it's such pure satire. So like I wouldn't I would say that they're almost more relatable in the way he films them than in the later ones. But but outside of how he interacts with people and, you know, feels a lot more impersonal by the end. I, I think that overall he has a very distinct visual style throughout. Well, I think that bodes really well for our upcoming bonus episode. At the end of each of these miniseries, what we've been doing is scoring out the director based on a five point metric that we've developed on. What makes a good director? And it's been really fun because we're not considering any outside sources beyond the three to five movies we're watching for these miniseries. So like for Kubrick, we're not considering 2001, even though we've watched that for the show in the past. So I just want to invite everybody, if if you're new to the podcast or if you've only been listening to our regular Tuesday episodes, check out the episode coming out this Friday where we talk about Kubrick as a filmmaker based only on these three films. Brad, uh, I think it is sure to be an interesting episode, if not because I think that we've both been much higher on Kubrick than I expected coming into this miniseries. Yeah, I honestly did not have positive uh, viewpoint of Kubrick coming into this. He, He definitely seems like a strange antagonistic character in the history of cinema. But at the end of the day, man, he knows how to work a camera and he knows how to set up a story. So and the there's nothing different here in Paths of Glory. I mean, I am also a strange and antagonistic character, but I know how to edit the hell out of a podcast. So you've had good practice in dealing with people <laughs> like me and my equal Stanley Kubrick, right? Yes, obviously. <laughs> Basically the same level of production value. Yeah, 100%, man. All right, let's get into our first segment of the day, which we call Brad Explains. Brad's going to give us the movie plot with only 60 seconds ticking on the clock. So let's go ahead and hear your take with this little segment that we call Brad Explains. Brad Explains is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. Brad, we have already established numerous times that this was your first experience with Paths of Glory. And I have to say, for a movie that is really well regarded, you know, it's uh, it's it was inducted into the National Film Registry in the first three or four years of that institution's existence. It's in the IMDb Top 250. It's in the Criterion Collection. I still think that among Kubrick's films, it's probably one of the least known. And so I'm expecting that a good chunk of our audience a hasn't seen it, but B probably hasn't even heard of this movie. So the onus falls on you, man. They are relying on you to give them the perfect breakdown of this film as they determine whether or not it's worth their time. Brad, no pressure. Yeah, I, I'm not. I don't feel any pressure, man. Go watch whatever you want to watch. <laughs> I, I don't give a sh- watch whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. Oh man! All right, dude. You have one minute on the clock. Now, folks, we are going to spoil the whole movie. So if you have not seen Paths of Glory, a movie that I strongly recommend you watch, uh, hit pause here. Go watch the movie. It is a brisk 88 minutes long. Come Mm. back and join us for the rest of the episode because Brad is about to ruin the whole thing for you. Brad, one minute on the clock and go. 
Paths of Glory is a World War I film about a battalion of French soldiers who are ordered by a ridiculous, uh, almost cartoonish general staff to take Ant Hill, which is is about on as on point as all the names in Doctor Strange love. <laughs> so they're ordered to go take Ant Hill. And they are unable to take it due to an extraordinary German counterattack. In the midst of this, the main general who is commanding the troops orders his artillery to fire on his own troops because he's angry for their cowardice. After the battle, he wants to court-martial 100 men and have them killed. He is talked down to only court-martialing three men. In the midst of this, Kirk Douglas is the uh, on-site commanding officer for this battalion. Five seconds. And he offers up a rousing defense of the three men accused of cowardice. Mm. And that's about the first half of the movie, folks. So, Brad, (laughs) even though the film's only 88 minutes long, we needed a two-minute Brad Explains. And I have to say, this is not a fault of yours, because watching this movie through this time, what I was most impressed by is how many storylines they are able to juggle and fully flesh out in a 88-minute runtime. Like, you have Mm -hmm. the, uh, you know, I don't want to call it the upper room because that sounds biblical, but, like, you've got the backroom sort of dealings of the generals and the high-ranking officers. You've got Kirk Douglas's own inner struggle, you know, being in the trenches with these men. You've got a full courtroom drama uh, after a full battle sequence. You've got the men getting sentenced to death, and then you've got like uh, a, an extended sequence of them in agony over the fact that they did nothing to be accused of cowardice, and they're just being offered up as a sacrificial lamb. And then you've got this sort of final confrontation with Douglas and his superiors at the end of the film. They really tackle a lot, and I think most directors and most screenwriters would be sacrificing some characterization along the way to get all this stuff crammed in. And yet everybody from the commanding officers on down to the three guys that get slaughtered, I think are really well fleshed out characters. Yeah, there's not a single person in this film that doesn't have a vibe to them that you just immediately understand and you get to see a little bit of an arc for everyone. Like I'm even thinking about the artillery uh, commander who refuses to take the orders to fire on his own men. And like, even in the what three minutes of screen time that he has, Mm -hmm. I feel fully attached to him. I feel the pain of what he was going through trying to like, Say, hey, man, like, I I can't do this without a written order, because if you died, it's going to be my butt on the line. Mm -hmm. And there's something about even just that one person that I'm like, man, if he can nail it and and be a fully fleshed out character like this entire cast was just incredible. Yeah. I love the fact that, you know, Kubrick adapted this, helped to adapt it. He's not a credited screenwriter, but he helped to adapt this from a a novel that had come out in the 30s. And the novel had really focused heavily on the point of view of the three guys that are shot at the end of the film by firing squad. And he said, I want to shift the focus to Colonel Dax, which is Kirk Douglas's character. And I think it's such a brilliant move because he is right in the middle of this conflict in every way that you can be in the middle of it. And I'm specifically now referring to the fact that his rank puts him right in the middle of it. He is 
high enough ranking that he is in command of this whole battalion and you've got captains and majors reporting to him, but he's not yet a general. And so the movie starts with, you know, I know they're French ranks, but I'm going to refer to them as if they're U.S. military, like the big general, we'll call him like the five star general arriving to this palace where the one or two star general lives commanding him. Hey, it's been passed down to me from even higher ups that we're going to take Ant Hill. Do something about it. Kirk Douglas is not in that room. The first time you see Kirk Douglas, he is in his like barracks in the trenches and they come down and greet him and tell him this is what you're going to do. And so from the beginning of the movie, you have this chain of command established that everyone is passing this off, knowing it's a horrible idea. And the person that gets stuck with it is Kirk Douglas. And he is the only person in the film really from both sides, because you have uh, people under him that are cowardly as well that has this sort of twinge of conscience and fights back against these orders. And so it puts him in the middle, not just of the chain of command, but it puts him in the middle of this conflict from a moral standpoint as well. And I think that just centering it around him, it makes so much more sense than centering it around the three guys that essentially get slaughtered at the end of the film. Yeah. And you, you get to spend a lot of time with one of the three who gets slaughtered, uh, I'm trying to remember his name. Is it, is it Paris? Yeah. Yep. Yes. So Paris, I think that it's probably one of the best examples of concise screenwriting I've ever seen where it ties into the main plot, but you have this like, you know, this kind of B story, if you will, going on where Paris is going out on a nighttime reconnaissance and he, his commanding lieutenant sends the third man of their party off to explore a little ruin. And then he gets scared and the lieutenant throws a grenade and kills his partner, you know, in, in the reconnaissance. And it takes up so little amount of time in the actual film, but it, it sets this important undertone for the bravery of this man and the cowardice of the other. And the way he ties that in throughout the rest of the movie I just think is brilliant screenwriting, Bob. Yeah, because you have, again, this completely other interpersonal relationship between that lieutenant and Paris who went to school together and he doesn't like him. And so now that he knows his his dirty little secret that he can't tell Kirk Douglas, the lieutenant sees that as his opportunity to throw this guy under the bus. And so there's like a ton of back and forth interpersonal dynamics happening in this movie. And honestly, Brad, I think concise is the perfect word. I'm just so impressed that they fit this much into a movie that is under 90 minutes long. And it doesn't just come across as guys talking in rooms, spouting exposition. No, like this very easily could have been a To Kill a Mockingbird style courtroom drama or, you know, forget that. It could be like a uh, A Few Good Men where like the courtroom drama and preparing for it is the entire thing. But Kubrick has a lot more to say than that. And mm. he he spends the perfect small amount of time needed with each and every scene to establish the overall story. This movie is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. So if you have a Prime account, I suggest you check out the movie. But even in the little description of the film, it says the first thing it says about the movie is that it's a courtroom drama. And I'm like, well, I, I definitely wouldn't say that it has courtroom drama elements to it. But because the point of the courtroom scene is that this is a complete kangaroo court that the general has set up, that 
they're not interested in introducing evidence as to these men's bravery. They just want somebody to take the blame. The fact that the courtroom sequence is only like 10 minutes long helps so much because it doesn't it doesn't overstay its welcome. And it makes its point that we're expecting a big courtroom showdown that never comes. And I think that's, again, one of the brilliant touches is that Kubrick makes this movie so lean because it echoes how quickly this miscarriage of justice happens. And he doesn't stretch it out. He doesn't overstay its welcome. He doesn't try to make it sappy and sentimental. It just it it's almost like he's reporting the facts. Well, the editing there is incredible. Mm-hmm. Like he finishes the courtroom scene with, you know, the the guy who is heading the court basically says, we'll take this into review and let you know about our verdict soon. And then it cuts and it's them being told that they're going to die. Mm-hmm. Like they're in the cell and they're trying to figure out if they can get out of this. Yeah. And it, there's something about the way he keeps this movie moving and the way he cuts from scene to scene that I'm like, this, like, this is the best edited of the three films, in my opinion. When we came into this episode, I had no idea what you were going to think of the movie. And it sounds like you liked it quite a bit. I was really worried that this was going to be your least favorite of the three coming off of last week where we talked about Dr. Strangelove and your your sentiments about Kubrick being kind of anti-America. Now, this movie was not necessarily like angled toward any specific American conflict, even though the Korean War had been happening. But it is such a bleak, nearly hopeless movie about the way that wars are started by people in power and that the people who don't have power are the ones that end up suffering for it. And it's about a miscarriage of justice. I didn't know what you were going to think of this movie, Brad. And I'm honestly kind of surprised to hear how much it seemed to work for you. But setting aside the mechanics of the movie, right, like how well it's edited. What did you think about the overall message of the film? Honestly, it. It strangely really reminded me of Bicycle Thieves a lot, that there's this bleakness of what happens when humans suck. Mm. Like, if I if I had to sum up the Bicycle Thieves as well as uh, Passive Glory, I would say that. Like, Kubrick is pointing out this reality that oftentimes humans just suck. And we don't do things well and we don't treat each other well. And we get so overinflated in our own egos. And we don't think that anybody could have a different viewpoint than our own. And and so I think that this movie is a critique of the egocentric more than it is a critique of any specific country. Mm. And And the thing is, like, not everybody picked up on that. You know, France, they banned this movie until like the 70s, -hmm. I want to say. And Germany was even a little bit longer because they didn't want to, you know, antagonize the French by showing it. You know, and I don't know why Germany would want better relationship with France, but, you know, they they didn't want (laughs) to piss them off anymore. So they didn't show the film. Yeah. And I think it's I think it's an example of how it can be easy to take the subject matter of something and make that the main message. And I think that in Dr. Strangelove, the core message of that movie was that American and Soviet leadership is horrible and terrible and dumb and stupid. Hmm. And that's why I had issue with that, where I'm like, you know, at the end of the day, like, are there stupid leaders out there? Yes. But are they all stupid? Are they all dumb? Are they all terrible? No. And whereas this film 
it comes across much, much more as this is what people can do in power and how they can abuse power. And I, I think that that's a, a universal message. Part of why I really like Kubrick's early films is they don't have that sense of detachment from their subjects. This feels like Kubrick's most intimate movie. And I think part of what I mean by that, too, is it's it's one of the only movies I can think of where he's making a case for humanity. Right. Like by showing the worst of what humanity can do. But then we'll talk about the ending of this movie. The ending is this. I mean, for Kubrick, it's probably like the sappiest ending he's ever made in a movie. And by the time you get to films like The Shining, like Full Metal Jacket, I feel like. If if his viewpoint isn't completely nihilistic, then it's at least kind of unclear what he wants it to say about human nature. And we talk about contemporaries, contemporary filmmakers, not of Kubrick, but today who remind us of Kubrick. And I know Paul Thomas Anderson is brought up a lot. But for me, the person that I always associate most with Kubrick is David Fincher, both because he uses so many takes with his actors, but he operates with such a sort of clinical and cold camera that I feel like he also puts his characters at such a distance. And he doesn't really have anything to say about the human race that is not just completely bleak. And yet this is one of Kubrick's most bleak films. But I feel like it actually has the biggest heart of any film he made. And I really, really love him for that. I wish that he had done more films like this, you know, before he got to the end of his career. Yeah, it's really fascinating, Bob, because he puts Kirk Douglas in this completely unwinnable situation, right? Where he's supposed to lead this battalion to a victory when he and everybody else knows his battalion can't, cannot take Ant Hill. Mm -hmm. And then he's put into this unwinnable situation of, well, now you have to defend these men in a kangaroo court that you clearly cannot win. And then the final scene of the film, you know, some of his troops are, are watching this German girl sing and they're crying because of how touching it is. And he receives news that they're going right back out to the front. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, he he pissed off the general too much. And in the midst of this incredibly dreary and sad movie, I don't know what it is, but there's something about it that feels... Hopeful. Yeah, like, I, I guess it's just this idea that... <laughs> this is, this is going to sound silly, but I mean it sincerely. Like, at some point, middle management is holding it all together. <laughs> right? Like, we all know that in a lot of large corporations, like, yes, it takes all of the workers to make it happen. And yes, upper management needs to do what it does. But at the end of the day, we all know that middle manager that runs the local branch and keeps everything flowing and keeps upper management off of people's backs so they can do their job. But then they also, you know, keep the workers accountable and make sure they do their job well. Like, I just feel like this movie is a giant advertisement for how important it is for companies to have a good middle manager. <laughs> well, on that note, Brad, let's talk about Kirk Douglas a little bit, because we're 200 movies in. I don't think we've ever done a Kirk Douglas movie before, which it's just kind of crazy for me to think about. But he's a huge star. And he's also a was, he in, Go ahead. was he in The Great Escape? He was not in The Great Escape, although the huh. the ending of this movie is so funny because like it has this really touching and sad and profound ending. And then it goes into the end credits where it just shows like mm -hmm. everyone who was in the movie smiling. And you're like, yep. it feels like the ending to a, The Great Escape. 
and it it feels very <laughs> yep. tacked on and and way out of character for the rest of the film. I will say though, for I I know that directors don't think about this when they make films, but when you're watching a film that's like 60 years old and you don't have a clue who any of the actors are outside of maybe Kirk Douglas, and let's be honest, not everybody who watches Paths of Glory might know who Kirk Douglas is. It's really nice to have the names attached to faces. We need You're to like, bring oh, this yeah. back. Yeah. Yeah, we totally need to bring it back. But only attached to the ends of movies where they just don't belong tonally. Like I want yes. I want the fade out of like marriage story and then fade back in <laughs> with a military sounding drum. Scarlett Johansson, Adam Driver, and they're all smiling and like giving thumbs up. Yeah. That's what we need in life. <laughs> Oh, that's exactly what cinema needs right now. All right, Kirk Douglas. We haven't had him on the show before. He's a huge star. He's also a very vocal star in Hollywood. And he's the kind of guy, you know, he reminds me a lot of like uh, Harvey Keitel. And we've talked about Harvey Keitel a bit with relation to like his Tarantino movies and how he basically got Reservoir Dogs made. He helped finance it. He pulled the strings. Kirk Douglas does a lot of that. He finds projects that he's really interested in from like a moral standpoint, and he just uses his pull in Hollywood to get them made. And sometimes it got him in hot water and sometimes it didn't. You know, this movie barely made back the money that it cost to make. It was a $900,000 movie. I think it made 1.2 mil at the box office. So it wasn't like Kirk Douglas was making a lot of money here, but he was putting his reputation on the line. And I think Trusting Kubrick was, you know, we, we know now with history that it paid off pretty well, but Kubrick uses him to such great extent in this movie. He has a movie star performance in the middle of what feels like a very grounded, almost documentary style movie otherwise, and it doesn't clash. It works really well with all the actors around him. Well, as I said, like the only reason this movie has hope is because Kirk Douglas's character feels like he will endure no matter what. He's this bastion of hope in a sea of ineptitude and hopelessness. Mm. And that's me with too. That, sure. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. I just I just love that. I'm going to adopt that for myself. A bastion of hope in a, a sea, sea of, of hopelessness. In, of ineptitude and hopelessness. <laughs> that's it, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't even remember what I was going to say uh, now. Sorry, Kirk dude. Douglas. Was, Kirk Douglas was incredible. That's all. That's all I have to say. He was so good in this movie, Bob. <laughs> I love when Kirk Douglas has his big like I want an Oscar moment at the end of this movie mm -hmm. where he's blowing up at Adolf Manju and I apologize that I haven't told you before now that you're a sad, sadistic old man. And then he does the head, like the hair shake. You could go to hell before I apologize. It is one of my favorite scenes in the history of movies because it is <laughs> so over the top. And yet in the context of the movie, you're like, F yeah, tell that dude. He needs to hear it. Yeah. It is just like it's a perfectly calibrated movie star performance where Yes, he is chewing the scenery at times a little bit, but he can get away with it because he's one of the biggest stars in the world. And I think Kubrick uses that to great effect. Well, I, I think he he can do that and he can have that Oscar moment because within the story of the movie, he has earned it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why like a lot of big Oscar-y moments in movies don't work is that 
whether it's the script and it's you know it might be poorly constructed or or the previous uh, scenes that influence that Oscary moment, I just think there's a lot of times where the the character doesn't deserve the level of emotional vulnerability or outburst that they are portraying. And here you watch Kirk Douglas do everything that they ask him to do. And eventually he just blows up and is like, no, like I have morals and standards and you all don't. And you can all go kick rocks Mm -hmm. is is my summary of what he said. (laughs) All right, let's talk about the rest of the cast, because it's actually a pretty large cast who have very well fleshed out roles. I guess I just kind of want to ask Brad, you know, we've got your two generals. We've got the three guys who get killed. You've got the cowardly lieutenant who among the rest of the sort of main cast stuck out to you. I mean, I think that the the guy who played Paris was really incredible, but. In addition to that, I think that the cowardly lieutenant, who I, I don't remember what his name is, Roger, was in, was incredible. Uh, like, I, I thought that he was one of the best of the secondary performances in this film, mm-hmm. and there's quite a few. But I thought that he did just such a good job of coming across as sleazy. You can always see the wheels in his head turning as fast as they can of how can I get out of this situation? Mm -hmm. And I I just thought that he had a really great performance. I did, too. And it reminds me a lot of what I said last week about George C. Scott in Dr. Strangelove, which is it's really easy to play a coward in the most theatrical, overblown way. And it still kind of works because when someone's cowardly, you're just like attuned to hate them. But he doesn't play it as like a fictional coward. He plays it like a real guy. And you you can see the twinges of conscience. You can see the regret for what he's done. But he's also just too mousy and too much of a sleazeball to admit to what he's done. Kirk Douglas figures him out really quickly and, and puts him on assignment, you know, basically heading up the firing squad as a punishment for what he did to his friend. And it's just such a well-tuned performance because it doesn't feel theatrical it doesn't feel you know like a guy playing a coward it feels like he's really embodying that and that makes him all the more i don't know antagonistic yeah honestly just among those three actors i i thought that all three of them brought a really beautiful nuance to the film where you know you have joe turkle playing private uh arnaud i think Mm mm-hmm and you don't expect it from him, but th- at the end of the day, he's kind of the nihilistic, drunk, like, there, there's no meaning in the world. Mm-hmm. And and I thought that that, his performance was really great. And he gets maybe, like, ten lines of dialogue. Yeah. This movie, gosh, this movie's so good. It It does so many things so well. And one of them is when all three guys first are being held as prisoners... Timothy Carey's character, you know, he's like, uh, I don't know. I don't care what you guys say. I'm going to eat this duck and I'm going to get out of here, even if you guys aren't. And he seems like the cool, calm, collected one. And Ralph Meeker's character, Paris, is a little nervous. And so is uh, Joe Turkle's character. And then as soon as, like, uh, I think it's the priest comes and tells them, like, yeah, there's nothing we can do at this point. It's It's an immediate switch that flips. And you see when confronted with death everyone's true colors and timothy carey starts crying and doesn't stop crying until the moment he's shot the following day you know joe turkle to your point his character becomes super nihilistic and he tries to find some comfort in the bottle before he 
has a violent outburst. And then Paris's character is, I mean, it's just so well written because he goes, he has his breakdown. He's told, hey, this is the last decision you can make on Earth. How do you want to go out? And then he composes himself. And it's just such a brilliant portrait of, and I ask myself this every time I watch this movie, when you are facing absolute certain death and there is no way to get out of it, what parts of yourself are going to come out? And I think that mm-hmm. all three of those guys really play their parts perfectly. Yeah. I think the thing that I keep coming back to, Bob, how did he pack this in 88 minutes? 88 minutes, buddy. We did like it, Brad. We're, like, we're still talking about, you know, acting performances and all these other things. And I, I'm just blown away that we could talk about the plot of this movie and the the nuances and all the things go on for three hours. And it would be twice as long as this film. Well, before we get to that point, Brad, I think maybe it's time for us to hit pause here. We'll come back after the break. We'll do our little two facts and a falsehood. We'll talk about Stanley Kubrick some more. But I am ready to drink some scotch. So what do you say we hop over to the space side region and try some of this singleton? Just like the generals drinking in the face of others' misery. Let's get to it, Bob. <laughs> All right, so today we are drinking The Singleton, single malt scotch whiskey. This is an 18-year scotch that is from the Singleton of Glendullen uh, distillery. Singleton actually has three distilleries that they operate out of, so when you buy some of their well-aged product, it tells you exactly which one it comes from. This is from the Glendullen distillery. It is an 80-proof or 40% ABV whiskey. I love the copy on their website. Whoever wrote this copy... Makes no sense, and I just love them for it. It's like, our 18-year-old single malt scotch is matured in a high proportion of American oak casks with a small portion of European oak casks to balance the liquid. What does that mean? Who's to say? Uh, Mostly it means that (laughs) this was aged, you know, primarily in American oak. I just don't understand what they're like. Oh, we have to balance the liquid. Let's bring some European oak in here. That is marketing talk, if ever I've heard marketing talk. And I would not be surprised if ChatGPT wrote that for them. So uh, with that out of the way, Brad, we know that ChatGPT. <laughs> that was like the most scathing thing I've ever heard come out of your mouth. About it's, a whiskey it's the company. worst website copy in the world, man. But <laughs> for those of you not in the know, Bob works in a online marketing, you know, SEO optimization company. Mm. And I think he's trying to drum up. Some business right now? Maybe? I don't know. I don't by, know if they're going to give me their business. Them? Yeah, right. The, I'm, I'm employing the Stanley Kubrick Dr. Strangelove technique, which is like, if That's you it. insult them, then they'll change their ways, right? Exactly. All right, Brad, let's dive into the product in our hand right now, and that is this Singleton 18-year. What are you picking up on the nose? Yeah, the so the nose here is really, really nice. It has honey. It, it gets into a strawberry realm for me, nice and fresh and, and fruity. There's a little bit of cinnamon uh, darkness that comes in with some brown sugar. I, I actually really like the nose here. I give it an 8 out of 10, Bob. This definitely smells more ethanol forward than I was expecting. Like it, I would have thought that this was near 100 proof just based on how alcoholic it smells and that's not necessarily a bad thing but i'm not used to getting that on a 40 percent abv product the note that really sticks out to me brad aside from your standard sort of space side softness 
is pineapple. I'm getting a ton of pineapple on this, which is mm. really, really great. We don't typically get notes that bright on single malt scotch, but, you know, Speyside is kind of known for having these soft, delicate, fruity notes. I'm really excited to dive into this, man. I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10 on the nose. Yeah, and once you get into the palate, man, there there is some really nice cinnamon warmth that comes through. There's a bunch of vanilla, almost butterscotchiness. The caramel is there, and there's just a bit of spiciness that isn't like an American rye or any spice you would get on a bourbon. It's a it's a little bit of a baking spice, almost a clove. I really enjoyed the palate here, Bob, and I gave it an 8.5 out of 10. Yeah, Brad, I think I'll get the the bad of it out of the way so that I can focus on the good. I think this is a little thin and it doesn't really coat my mouth very well. It just feels just a tad watery. However, I still kind of think it's at the right proof point. Like, I don't know if making this a little closer to barrel proof is going to improve this product because it has a ton of flavor. I got a lot of underlying vanilla on the palate, which I was not expecting. I got just a hint of those tropical fruits, but on their website below the horrible copy, uh, they have tasting notes. And one of the notes that they put in the palate is chili, like chili pepper. And I think that's a really good note for this. It, it comes across closer to like a cayenne pepper to me, but there's a spiciness to this that is really unexpected and really, really pleasant. So paired with that kind of pineapple-y thing, it's got almost like a, uh, do you know what tahine is, Brad? Like the the spice that they sometimes put on the rim of like margaritas? Yeah. It kind of has that for me. It's almost like a Mexican palette on a scotch, and I am really digging it. I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10 on the palette. Yeah, and when you get into the finish, it definitely changes from the sweetness up front. There's dill, there's black pepper. It gets a tiny bit vegetal. And it it gets strangely smoky. Like, it's mm-hmm. not peaty at all, but it has a wood smoke campfire feel to it mm-hmm. that I am in love with. Uh, I, I give it an 8 out of 10 here. Yeah, I'm having trouble deciding what score to give. I think your notes are spot on, but it's so vastly different than the rest of the tasting experience that I don't know if I want to ding it or maybe I should ding it on balance. I think I'll give it a 7 on the finish. And then if if you don't mind, if I just jump into balance, I'm going to give it a 7.5 on balance just because some of those notes from the nose and the palate don't really transfer over to the finish. And it does kind of seem like a hard cutoff instead of a smooth transition between those. So it's a seven on finish. It's a seven and a half on balance for me. Yeah, I was at a seven and a half on balance. I think that there's really interesting notes here. They just don't always complement each other perfectly, but... It is very complex and interesting. So I think it's a solid whiskey. It just took me in a lot of different directions. (laughs) Brad, how much is this going to set you back in the wonderful state of Ohio? Well, Bob, I'm not sure you can get it in the state of Ohio anymore. However, in general, I'm seeing it online right around the triple digit mark, right around $100. Okay, at $100, I think this is a little overpriced, but I'm trying to, you know how I do my whole market research thing. Like the Glenmorin G18 that we had is like $130. So it doesn't seem like it's super out of left field here. It's only 40% ABV. Man, I'm struggling. Brad, what are you thinking? Uh, I give it a 6 out of 10. Hmm. I think it's a really good scotch. 
it's just overpriced at 80 proof. Mm-hmm. And like the the actual juice that you are drinking needs a little more oomph to it yeah. to really land. So I think it's a six out of ten. It's still a decent value. It's a really interesting whiskey. Uh, it's just a little overpriced. If this was like seventy to eighty dollars, I think it'd be like uh, seven and a half to eight out of ten value. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm gonna give it a six point five on value, and that's bringing me to a thirty-seven out of fifty. Brad, what's your final score? I'm at a thirty-eight point five out of fifty. All right, so that brings us to a 37.75 out of 50, or a 75.5 out of 100. I think that's a pretty good spot for this. This is not quite hitting that 80 out of 100, 40 out of 50 mark, where we start really raving about a whiskey, but it's a pretty darn good whiskey. Like, I think this is certainly worth getting a pour at the bar. I don't know that I'd Mm -hmm. recommend shelling out 100 bucks for a bottle, but like, you know, if this is a $10, $12 pour, I think you could do a heck of a lot worse. Yeah, I'm actually with you, Bob. I think I would recommend getting a pour at the bar, maybe not buying right off the bat. All right, Brad. Well, I think that this was a much better pairing with Paths of Glory than Dr. Strangelove, where we originally had it lined up, because uh, at least they're both from the European you know, area, right? That's, that's about as close as we're yeah. going to get. Totally, totally makes sense. I mean, dude, the only thing people drink in Europe is scotch. Like, I know that there's a, a quote unquote bourbon boom going on over there, but the average consumer who drinks whiskey in Europe only drinks scotch. So I, I think you're set. Well, let's try to tie it together a little more closely here and just say you should be tried for cowardice if you don't try Singleton 18. Ah, there yes, it is. that's exactly what our score of 75.5 <laughs> Out of would, would, would indicate. indicate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, man. Let's get back to Paths of Glory. Let's get to it. All right, everybody. That was the 18-year singleton of Glendola, a whiskey that we enjoyed but would not spend that much money on. Nope. No, sir. <laughs> I don't have anything clever to say. I'm just I'm not going to spend that much money on this. Ah, uh, Bob, the clever one of this bunch. Ah. You're darn right I am, Brad, and uh, I have evidence to that fact because I am now 13-10 and 10 on the season in our next game, which we call Two Facts and a Falsehood. Brad is gonna try to stump you, Bob, to our right, and what is wrong? Two Facts and a Falsehood. Two Facts and a Falsehood is the part of the podcast where Brad presents three items to me as fact about the making of this movie, one of which he has completely made up. And I have to guess which one that is. I was not doing so hot earlier in the season, Brad, but I have redeemed myself and then some. Yeah, you sure have, man. Uh, it's It's been a beautiful thing to watch. As you've, you've brought yourself up from the mire. I am going to keep thinking that your trajectory is going to follow every single Cleveland Guardians se- uh, season <laughs> where you think that they're going to get over 500. And then they kind of tease you with it, and then they just take a nosedive at the end of the season. So uh, I like to think that I am whoever is doing better than the Guardians right now in our division, which is most teams. And I'm just going to keep this hot the, streak alive, man. The Guardians like have just beaten the Twins like three games in a row. Well, we're, like, shoot. We're right on their heels, man. You know what? I should have I researched before. I literally <laughs> stopped paying attention to them last week when I saw a headline that was like, Guardians continue their slide into obscurity. And I was like, yep, mm-hmm. I'm done with them. So, of course, now yep. they'd start winning again. 
Yep, they sure Maybe are. I'm the Guardians. Maybe you, maybe you are the Guardians, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> All right. In any case, Brad, hit me with your two facts and a falsehood. Fact number one, throughout filming, actor Joe Turkle, who played uh, Private Arnaud, was constantly a disruption under the film, at one point staging the kidnapping of another actor on set. Kubrick was often enraged by this and nearly fired him from the production multiple times. Fact number two, director Stanley Kubrick met Christiane Kubrick, then Christiane Harlan, during filming. She performs the singing at the end of the film. He divorced his second wife the following year to marry her, and they remained married until his death in 1999. Fact number three, Stanley Kubrick approached Kirk Douglas with the script. Douglas instantly fell in love with it, and he told Kubrick, Stanley, I don't think this picture will ever make a nickel, but we have to make it. Okay, I don't know that I'm going to tease this out. I think my gut is telling me that number one is the falsehood, and here's why. Kubrick seemed to be a generally uh, not super forgiving person, and a lot of times when he had contentious times on set with an actor, he would just never work with that actor again. But I know that he worked with Joe Turkle again because he played the bartender Lloyd in The Shining. He sure did. Now, maybe Kubrick liked a good prank every now and then. Maybe this is true. But I'm going to say that number one is the falsehood. And I don't think I'm going to change my mind on that. So I'll, I'll lock it in as my final answer. Bob, you are 100% correct. Yeah. That is the falsehood. Man, Brad, it's, it's getting too easy for me now. Yeah, you're nailing it, dude. It's I like am, five in a row. I am Team USA in exhibition play at this point. <laughs> I was to say it's uh it it's pretty easy for them as they move through the ranks. I think Spain is ranked over them right now though. Yeah, I was thinking more of like the dream team, you know. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, sure. Yeah. The I don't dream wanna... <laughs> Bob's the dream team. <laughs> Cuz the dream team would ever be 14 and 10 in world play. <laughs> Shut up, man. <laughs> All right, let's get back into Paths of Glory. This is the most we've talked about sports on our podcast, I think, ever. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know if everybody knows this, but initially Bob was like, hey, we should start like a college football podcast. And I was like, yeah, college football. And he was like, how about a podcast about movies and whiskey? And I was like, there you go. That's the one. Yep. I'm still <laughs> doing the college football podcast. I'm just going to slowly morph this one into that. <laughs> Okay, Paths of Glory. We've talked a little bit about Kirk Douglas. We've talked about most of the cast at this point. You know, it's funny, Brad, because I feel like we did a pretty good job of establishing, like, this is the general vibe of the movie, and these are generally the things that happen in the movie. But I still don't feel like we fully captured the extent to which this is, like, as anti-war as a movie can get. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? And it... But it, to your point earlier, it doesn't feel targeted to any specific individual so much as it mm -hmm. seems to be echoing like the uh, the old system of a down lyric. The uh, why don't presidents fight the war? Why do they always send the poor? I kept thinking about that watching this movie because it really skewers the people in power. But it doesn't have that Dr. Strangelove mean streak to it. So I guess what I want to ask you, Brad, is like. How does this movie work as an anti-war film, not necessarily just a movie about, you know, cowardice and bravery? I think that if I think that this film represents the shift uh, 
in cultural thought from a focus on how individuals serve the whole to how does the whole serve the individual. And and that's like that's a massive shift in, in cultural thought throughout history, right? Mm. Like when you when you look at the entirety of world history, everybody always you know, philosophers and politicians and even common people, you know, priests and pastors and religious folk, everybody talked about how do you sacrifice of yourself for the greater good? And, you know, there's a lot of places where that was selfishly done and not done well, but that was kind of the general philosophy of life. And it wasn't until the 1900s, the 1800s, where, you know, the the romantic authors and the enlightenment thinkers started to change the way our cultures thought about the individual human's responsibilities when it came to how they live with other people. And this movie is just emblematic of that. It it is pointing out how there are so many times where large systems are trying to accomplish a goal that does not serve the individuals who are the the workers of accomplishing that goal. Mm Mm-hmm. And he like he points out how war is extraordinarily unfair and extraordinarily broken. And I, I think that if I have a critique of this film, it is somewhat similar to the critique I had with Dr. Strangelove in that he, there is absolutely no nuance to the people he doesn't like. Mm-hmm. Like you never in a Kubrick film as as far as the four that I've seen. You never once are in doubt of who Kubrick doesn't like in the script. (laughs) I think that's a good point. I think when the movies are designed around a message, it makes a lot more sense and it works a lot better. I think that's still part of why The Shining doesn't totally work for me. It worked a lot better than it has in the past. But like, what's he really trying to say about Jack Torrance? It's clear that he does not like Jack Torrance, but like. What is the underlying message of that? I don't know that mm-hmm. there really is one. And I think that's kind don't, of why don't that hit movie... your kids, Bob. Yeah. You know, you deserve <laughs> you deserve to freeze to death if you hit your children. <laughs> Hashtag Stanley Kubrick. All right. Um, Brad, let me ask you this then. This is a completely different question, but I was thinking of it as I watched the film. The scene where they try to tank take the anthill, like the combat sequence. It is so realistic. And Kubrick, obviously being the attention to detail guy he was, that set is insane. Like it looks like a real World War One battlefield. And it's very obviously not something that's just done, you know, on a soundstage. Like it's a big open environment. How did you think the combat scenes in this movie worked? Because last week you were mentioning that Dr. Strangelove really kind of blew your mind with how realistic the the combat in that film was. So when Kubrick is actually making a war film, did it work as well for you this time around? Oh, it was incredible. Like, like truly incredible. It lasts, it only lasts for a few minutes, but the level of detail and the way he pays attention to how people move in a field of combat, I, I just thought was spectacularly done. And he, he has a great ability to stay with big wide angles when he needs them and then push in on Kirk Douglas when he needs to. I Yeah, I, I don't have like a ton to say, but it, I thought it was stellar. You know, I'm sure that what they did was they just kind of had a little ridge over on the side where they it was flat and they could, you know, put a track down and just kind of dolly across. But 
in my mind, I'm thinking like, okay, there's no steady cam. The camera is big and unwieldy at this point in 1957. They're obviously not flying a drone or a helicopter through here. Like, it's crazy how much camera movement he's able to do across this battlefield. You would expect mm-hmm. that he would just have, like, stationary cameras and be filming from a bunch of different angles. And there is some of that. But there's this probably, like, two-minute-long tracking shot from the time Kirk Douglas gets out of the trench to the time they finally cut away and show some guy get blown up. Like, it's it's crazy how much ground they cover in that two-minute span. And for people who were just getting used to Kubrick as a filmmaker, I think that's a huge flex on his part that he's able to pull off a shot that complicated. Yeah, and as I said at the start of this episode, like, the way he moves a camera is unique and talented and... You know, especially through the trenches, uh, like I saw images of 1917 mm-hmm. all over this film when he's moving the camera through the trenches. And he did it in 1957. Like mm-hmm. that, like that's nuts, Bob. It's it's so well done. All right, man, I think that we're at a really good spot on establishing that we liked this movie. So let's take this opportunity to pair this up with something else. With our next segment, which we call Let's Make It a Double. We're near the end of the episode, so thanks for listening to the Film and Whiskey Show. Let's pair another film with this one, even if it's struggling. It's the final segment of the day, now let's make it a double. Let's Make It a Double is the part of the podcast where we pair this movie up with another one to make the perfect double feature. Brad, I'll turn it over to you first. What would you like to pair this movie up with? Honestly, I've been trying to find a different film in my brain that would fit. I think that Apocalypse Now could be a decent pairing here if you're going for the anti-war theme, but I don't want to subject anybody to watching that film. So I'm going to go with a movie I already mentioned. I'm going to pair this with Bicycle Thieves. Hmm. I think that the length of Bicycle Thieves is great. It's not that long of a film. The themes that they hit upon are very similar. And I, I think they both make you think a lot about the horrors of war and especially World War II. So, I, yeah, that's my pairing. I'm also going to go with a movie that you have mentioned on this podcast already, and I'm going to go with To Kill a Mockingbird. Even though this doesn't hinge on the courtroom scene the way that To Kill a Mockingbird does, I think that you could do a, a heck of a lot worse in finding two films that are both about the miscarriage of justice and trying to find hope and humanity in the fallout from it. And I think that's like that's the overarching thing that I'm left with at the end of this movie is that. These guys are literally being sent to the front so that they can be killed at the end of the movie. This general just wants them all to die at this point. And the the final image you're left with is Kirk Douglas nodding in approval as he understands that his men might be victims of inhumanity, but that they have a humanity within them. And I think that's kind of the overarching message of To Kill a Mockingbird, too, what it means to come of age in a world that is unfair. And so, yeah, that's my pairing. Brad, you kind of uh, you kind of tipped your hand with both of our let's make it a doubles today. I am quite the cinephile, Bob. I don't you know sh- if you know this about me. You sure are, man. Foreign films, films from the 30s. Look at me go. <laughs> I love I love that those are like your two bullet points. <laughs> I am a cinephile. Foreign films, films from the 30s. 
I mean, tell me that those aren't requirements to be a cinephile. <laughs> I like it reminds me of that scene in The Office where Dwight's like, I love movies. I've seen over 200 of them. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a great thing. Yeah. All right, man. Let's give this movie some final scores. I'm really anxious to hear what you have to say, Brad. So the floor is yours. What do you think of Paths of Glory? Man, I want to give this a 10 out of 10. I think I'm going to stick at a nine and a half because I just, I don't like how mean Kubrick is. Mm. And so for that alone, I, like he just does not give nuance or or flavor to characters he doesn't like. And I, I just, I don't know. There's something about that that irks me. So I'm going to give it a nine and a half out of 10. Bob, th- this is like, one of the ultimate platonic ideals of what a 90-minute movie should look like. Mm-hmm. I'm right there, man. I was going to give it a 9 this time around because it just didn't quite click for me on the level that it has before. But listening to you talk and and your first experience with the movie, it's one of those movies that's like you keep hoping against hope that something's going to happen. And when Kirk mm-hmm. Douglas goes and talks to the big general about the news that he's gotten that that his general ordered his own men to be killed and you think maybe it's going to result in these guys getting out of prison and then just the gut punch that it doesn't happen and the wheels of bureaucracy keep turning it's man it's just such an emotional movie and so me watching it on like my 10th watch I'm like oh yeah okay I'm going to pay more attention to the camera movement this time so I didn't enjoy it as much this time but listening to you talk about it has reminded me that this is a nearly perfect movie. I'm not going to give it a 10, but I will give it a 9.5. And that means that for one of the few times this season, Brad, we have both come out to a 9.5 out of 10. But we'd like to know what you think. Have you seen Paths of Glory? Have we hopefully inspired you to go watch it? If not, you can let us know all about it on our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, at Film Whiskey. Or you can jump on a Discord. We are on Discord every day, Bob, talking to you guys, the fans of the Film and Whiskey podcast. So if you would like to join the conversation, you can do that by clicking the link at the end of every single one of our show notes. Brad, we go from one of our shortest films of the season to what is surely our longest film of the season as we leave behind Stanley Kubrick for the director, William Wyler. And we're going to be watching his Oscar winning four hour epic Ben Hur next week. So join us for that marathon watch next week. (laughs) I I was going to ask you why we didn't do Spartacus for Kubrick, but now I know that Spartacus and Ben Hur back to back would have been interesting, but brutal. Like an eight hour work day to watch those two movies. All right, oh, so man. join us for Ben Hur next week. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>